And our gospel lesson is found in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 40, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 17. This is God's Word. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, as we gather around your word, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit for understanding, and that you would guide us into all truth, that our lives will be transformed by this Jesus who intersects with us this morning, proclaiming forgiveness to sinners. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So on a recent NPR episode, it's titled, The Day That Changed Everything. It's a great episode about the 16 Sherpas who were killed on April 18th of this year. They were killed while making preparations for the climbing season on Mount Everest. 
and they'd arrived at the Kumbu Icefall, and there was an avalanche. It's actually, avalanche is an understatement. 60,000 tons of ice and rock came crashing down on this group of 16 Sherpas. A few men survived, but mostly the party was annihilated. They were there making preparations for wealthy Westerners who would go and climb Mount Everest. And these men, unfortunately, in the way that the system works, were paid very little. But they support almost entire clans and villages with what they do make, and it's $12,000 a year, which is much more than the $600 that most in the region make for the year. But after the accident... Everything has changed on Mount Everest. The climbing season was actually closed this year. No one is climbing the mountain. And the Sherpas are demanding that things change. The great risk that they put themselves at, they are acknowledging. And they're acknowledging that they're paid very little for their risk, while some get extremely wealthy from this prospect of climbing Everest. And Everest, fortunately, will not be the same. There will be ripple effects for years to come, new policies and procedures put in by the country of Nepal. Everything will change on Mount Everest. And so there's one cataclysmic event. It changes the equation, and it puts things right. Some injustices and wrongs are being undone because of what happened on one day. And when we arrive in the Gospel of Mark, this is what we find, that there is a story taking place in front of us about Jesus, who is called the Son of Man, and it is a cataclysmic event that is changing everything. It changes the equation, and he begins to put things right, that he's announcing that the great day of God's restoration of everything has arrived in him. And so it unfolds throughout these 16 chapters of this gospel. And Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection, what it looks like for the world to be put right. When the king arrives, that there is a day that is going to change everything, and that it has happened. And so what does it look like for the world to begin to be put right? There's three things this morning that we'll track with. And the first is this is that Jesus cleanses the unclean, reintegrating us into life. It's the story of the leper. The leper comes to Jesus. He kneels before him, which was a status of humbleness, of need, and he cries out, if you will, you can make me clean. A leper in the ancient world was a dead man walking. You were cut off from society. You were labeled unclean, and no one could touch you. And if they did, they became unclean and were in danger of contracting leprosy. Leprosy was a word that was used for a host of skin diseases. But the leper was ostracized, cut off, removed from society. He was like a corpse. And here he is, kneeling in front of Jesus, crying out with a messy kind of desperation, if you will, you can make me clean. And then Mark tells us that moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. 
Commentators have a field day on this one short verse and this one phrase, moved with pity. And there's a great debate about what this word means, but um, most modern commentators will tell you that this phrase, moved with pity, is more moved with anger. That as this man kneels before Jesus in his broken condition, in his broken body, with leprosy taking away his life and cut off from the world around him, Jesus is moved with anger. And you say, why? Why was he angry? Was he angry at the leper? By no means. It's important for us to see that Jesus' anger is directed at the brokenness of the world that profoundly afflicts everything around him, including this man. And that Jesus' anger turns into compassion, though, as he does the unthinkable, as he does what no one in the society would have done. He reaches out and he touches him. Jesus is willing to identify with this man, making himself unclean. He pollutes himself, touches him, and makes this broken man clean. He heals him. Jesus then tells him to go back to the priest. And this is where the story gets interesting, because a priest was the one in Israel who had to certify that a leper had been healed. The priest could not heal the leper himself, but they had to certify it. And upon certifying it, the man was then restored to his communal and social life. He no longer had to live in the leper colony. And you see the purpose of Jesus' miracle. He's not just showing that he has power above nature, though he does. But he's also reintegrating this man into full human functioning, into the life that God intended And that those are the powers of the kingdom coming to bear on the world around Jesus. That the day that changes everything, when Jesus shows up on the scene, that this is part of it. Is Jesus bringing us back into right relationship with the world around us and with other people. And he's undoing death and disease and all the things that afflict us. He's properly angry about the brokenness of the world. And then he's properly compassionate. And he touches that world. And he wants to see that world healed and put right and made right. Today, we don't have outbreaks of leprosy and people identifying themselves as unclean. But we certainly have other labels that are placed upon us and that sometimes we impose upon ourselves, sometimes that the church imposes upon others that definitely communicates unclean. Things that we think God cannot overcome. Things that we think are just simply too great, too profound. Several years ago, I received a call from a friend. He was a young married man. And he said, can we get together for breakfast this week? Which was not unusual. And I said, well, um, what does your week look like? What day would you like to do it? And he said, tomorrow. It needed to be yesterday. So we scheduled at my favorite restaurant, um, and uh, we set up breakfast. And at breakfast, I could tell that he was quite nervous, and he had something to tell me. And he said, Chuck, I'm dealing with same-sex attraction. I'm married. I know it's wrong, and I don't feel like I can confess it to anybody. It was an interesting moment. 
Because here is someone recognizing their own brokenness, not proud or excited about what's going on in his inner workings, not fully understanding it at all, understanding that God needed to change him, that it was making him a poor husband, that it was tearing his life apart, that there were behaviors emanating from this that he was not proud of. And yet he felt like he couldn't confess it. Because as soon as the words escaped his lips, he thought that they can never come back, that I'll be labeled unclean, that this is unforgivable. And friends, it can be same-sex attraction. It can be a host of other sins things that we think we'll be labeled for, that just absolutely own us and identify us, that completely overwhelm our lives. It can be related to money. It can be related to alcohol. It can be related to sex. It can be related to any number of things in your lives. But the great thing about encountering this Jesus is that he overcame the label of leprosy, of someone being cut off, unclean, impure, He wasn't afraid to pollute himself by entering into the fray because Jesus trusted that his cleanliness could overcome any manner of sin. That's the Jesus who intersects the world. He comes into the world in all of its brokenness, and he removes the labels. He destroys it. He destroys the power of sin and all of its brokenness that emanates from it. And he reintegrates us into the life that God has intended for us rehabilitating us, bringing us back into human functioning. And so it's the day that changes everything because Jesus cleanses the unclean. And we also see in the passage that Jesus reconciles the unrighteous, pardoning our sins. He moves in compassion to the leper, and then he returns to Capernaum where he's in his own house, And here is Jesus sitting in his house, and crowds are surrounding him. And if you can imagine the scene where there's no room to move, and suddenly someone starts to tear out the roof. I'm imagining someone putting a hole through my roof to lower themselves to me. But it would be noisy. It would be a mess. And in the ancient world, this wasn't light to to tear through somebody's roof of mud and sticks. And so here it is, though, a man is lowered down through the roof, being brought to Jesus. Verse 3, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. A host of questions emerged after this bold statement. Here comes the paralytic down from the roof with the hole and the dust and the dirt falling upon everybody's head. And Jesus has the audacity to say, My sons, your sins are forgiven. And people were asking, on what authority do you say those words? Because, see, they were the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the religious scholars of the day. And what they believed was that the authority to forgive sins belonged to God, 
And that authority was invested in one place on earth, and that was the Jewish temple. That if you were to be absolved of your sins, there was a proper location where that took place. And so functionally, Jesus was subverting the temple and the system of the temple. And he was saying, the dwelling place of God on earth is in me. That's the controversy here. Jesus knows that they don't believe that, and so he asks them a question. He says, what is easier? Is it easier for me to say, son, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? Jesus says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive. And he tells the paralytic to get up. He used the word rise, that is the same word that's used with resurrection. Jesus raises him with the same power of the resurrection that God will raise him. The powers of new creation fall on this man, and his lame legs are brought to life. He gets up and he walks. He carries his mat away. And Jesus does this as a demonstration of his ability to forgive. Because Jesus is here pointing us to the deeper disease, that our ultimate problem is not the leprosy, and our ultimate problem is not lame legs, but the deeper problem that afflicts us all is the debt that we have in front of God. C.S. Lewis tells a wonderful story. It's in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And there is an insufferably selfish little boy named Eustace. And Eustace was on the journey with the company. They're sailing to the other side of the world, and their ship is wrecked. And Eustace goes with the company onto the shore. He wanders away one day from the camp, and he sees a dragon outside of his den, outside of his lair. And the dragon dies there in front of Eustace. So Eustace goes into the dragon's den and sees a pile of gold, and he puts on a gold bracelet on his, on his wrist, and then he falls asleep on top of the gold. It was Lewis's way of giving commentary to Eustace's selfishness and his greed that just completely polluted his character. While he's asleep, Eustace turns into a dragon. He wakes up, and he, he ends up looking in the, in the water, and he sees what he's become. He hates it, and he wants to be returned to a little boy, but he didn't know what to do. He goes back to the camp, and he's somewhat useful. And then one night, a lion comes to him, who's Aslan, and says, follow me. Aslan takes him to the side of a pool, and he tells him to undress Eustace begins to claw at his dragon scales. He's attempting to rip them off. He rips off a layer only to find another layer. He rips at the layer again only to find another layer. And then Aslan looks at him and says, I must undress you. We must go deeper still. And this is what Aslan then does. He rips as deep as he can and he takes the dragon and plunges him in the pool of water. And he's transformed back to a little boy. And friends, the point of Lewis's entire story is that we must be transformed in the depths of who we are. 
that the surface and ephemeral change, the healing of a physical body, doesn't ultimately address the sickness in the human heart. And this is what Jesus is saying about the paralytic, is that we have to be healed at this core, made right with God, forgiven of our sins, put in a right relationship with Him through hearing those words, my son, your sins are forgiven. This is what happened for Levi. And sometimes people ask, why is the story of Levi, a tax collector, someone who is hated, why does it follow immediately after the story of the paralytic? And I believe the intent that God has in that is that the healing of Levi, him turning from greed and graft and corruption, a Roman collaborator, that the turning of that story following the paralytic is because it's an equally miraculous thing. That is the same power of God that tells the lame man to get up and walk. It's the same power of God that says, follow me, and that summons Levi out of his greed and graft. And so, friends, this is what God does in reconciling us and pardoning our sins. This is the grace he shows us. It changes everything. It changes everything about the world around us. And the question for us is, do we see the actual problem? Do we see the profound brokenness in the world around us, but we, do we still see deeper the sickness in our heart that alienates us from God and the great need we have to be put right, to hear those words, Son, your sins are forgiven? But also on this day that changes everything, we see one final thing. And this is that Jesus feasts with sinners, creating a new community. It's fascinating, after Jesus calls Levi, in verse 15 it says, And he reclined at table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, Jesus was eating with all the wrong kinds of people. If he was really coming to renew Israel, then he would be eating with the religious elite who were clean, who followed the purity laws, who observed them. But Jesus was restoring sinners who were outside the camp. He was bringing them back in. He was declaring forgiveness. He was saying that he was the presence of the temple, that he was the living God in the midst of the people. What had long been promised is now being fulfilled. And that Jesus was subverting the proper channels, saying that something greater was in their midst. And they were concerned that he wasn't doing it correctly. They were lost in their own concerns. And here is Jesus sharing meals, reclining on couches as was the custom in that day, with people who were politically divisive. Tax collectors were Roman collaborators, hated by Jews. Sinners were people of all kinds of ranks, no telling the offenses and different things that fell into them, and they were eating out of one bowl together lined up with each other. The common denominator in that scene was the host of the table, who is Jesus. 
And friends, that's the new kind of community that Jesus creates, where he's the basis of the fellowship, that it's not class, it's not status, it's not race, it's not background, it's not failures or lack of failures, that the common denominator is Jesus, is that he's what holds the whole meal in the community together. That's the basis of our relating to one another inside the church. Recently, Melissa and I were talking to um, to a church planter, and we asked them how the church was going. And they said, well, the, the, everything's going well. It's really exceeded my expectations. I actually like everyone in the church. We got in the car, and we both looked at each other. I think we knew that we were thinking the same thing, that this is no real church, if you like everybody. That a real church has far more challenges than that that it has people with politics that might disgust you, people with backgrounds that are offensive to you, people who've done things that you just find unthinkable. And you're there around one table sharing in the same food, dipping in the same bowl because of one common denominator. It's the host of the table. It's Jesus. And friends, that's the uncommon kind of community that when Jesus intersects the world, he begins to create. And for those people who think that they've done God a favor by joining his team, they will never understand it. For those who think, wow, yep, that person really needs this, never understand it. But for those who come like Levi, for those who come like the paralytic down through the roof, and those who come like the leper, who come with some kind of desperate need, knowing the need to intersect with Jesus, to experience His grace in their lives, they're the ones who get it. Because this is the way that God's power intersects our life. It involves us coming with some kind of desperation, imploring Him and kneeling, crying out to Him, recognizing that there's something that we can't fix that there is a pulling back of the scales that we can't accomplish, that things are out of our power and out of our control, no matter how well planned or how well accomplished we are, no matter how much money we may have, no matter how long your resume is, there's something outside of Jesus that can't happen. And so can we come like that? And can we sit at a table with those who we might consider disgusting. Because the basis of the fellowship, the basis of the whole thing, the basis of the new world that God is creating is this one person, Jesus, who takes all the evil of the world onto himself in the cross and absorbs it and then rises from the dead defeating it. And that's why he has authority on earth to forgive sins because he's canceled them out. And that's why he has authority to remove the labels. And that's why he has authority to end all division. Because he's defeated all the evil in the world. He was crushed by it. But it couldn't hold him. He rises over it. And friends, he welcomes you into that kind of new world order. A place of forgiveness and wholeness of life. A place of community and feasting and joy a place where diversity really does exist and is embraced and accepted. That's the new world of Jesus.
and let's put it into practice amongst ourselves.